0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Mary O'Grady. I'm a columnist at The Wall Street Journal and a member of the editorial board. And I'll be chairing our first panel this morning, which is titled, 100 Years of the Fed, What Have We Learned? To me, that title suggests that this panel has the potential to be the shortest conversation on record (laughs) at any Cato Annual Monetary Conference over the last three decades. Nonetheless, we have three highly qualified speakers who can give us some insights into uh, the matter. Uh, You have their bios in your packets, so I'll just give them very brief introductions. Uh, Jerry Jordan is a former Fed president. He was at the Cleveland Fed for many years. Uh, Don't hold that against him. He has many other qualifications. He was also a member of President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisers, a member of the U.S. Gold Commission, and in my mind, one of uh, his greatest uh, strengths is that he studied under Armin Alchen at UCLA, uh, one of my rock stars of the 20th century in economics. Um, George Selgin is a professor of economics at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. That's Georgia, the one in the south of this country, not the one uh, in, next to Russia. Uh, George is also one of the foremost experts on free banking, which is another way of saying that he's the guy with the plan about what we're going to do after we get rid of the Fed. <laughs> and Athanasios Orphanidis teaches economics at MIT, But I think, but he also spent some five years from May 2007 to May 2012 as the governor of the Central Bank of Cyprus. And that means he's uniquely qualified on this panel to share with us an insider's view of central banking in Europe. Each of the speakers will have 15 minutes and then we'll have some time for Q&A. So I'd like to start with uh, Jerry Jordan. Thank you, Jerry.
1: Thank you, Mary, and, and Jim, and all the great people at uh, Cato that have made this uh, conference so successful for, I think, three and a half decades now. We're reaching the point where this conference series started when some members of the audience were children. Uh, and so <laughs> when they reach my age and the conference is still going, uh, we'll have quite a track record of things. Uh, I enjoyed Charlie Plasser's speech, and I agree with Everything that he said in that uh, from the beginning of um, Milton's admonition about mission creep um, and um, his um, call for a new accord and the list of things that could be done to at least um, gain independence and enhance the thing. But from that, my takeaway is that Charlie would probably not agree with the proposal that to assign to the Federal Reserve responsibility for uh, uh, implementation of the Affordable Care Act, is that right? (laughs) Uh, Although the Fed did chair uh, the airline uh, restructuring effort back in the 90s, there was a proposal from a Fed governor at one point while I was involved that the Federal Reserve should be charged with restructuring K-12 education uh, just, um, a short debate <laughs> the first score of years of this century long experience of central banking transformed a, a lender of last resort payments processor issuer of a uniform national currency into a full-fledged central bank with discretionary authority to manage a fiat currency in the 60 plus years since the accord of 1951 the U.S. Central Bank has gone full circle from being a de facto Bureau of the U.S. Treasury to an independent monetary authority and back to a Bureau of the Treasury. (laughs) For several decades, we've had debates about free reserves, net borrowed reserves, targets and indicators, conceptions of Bruner and Meltzer back in the 60s, monetary versus fiscal of Friedman, Meiselman and the St. Louis Fed, the Phillips curve, Monetary targeting in the 70s and 80s, econometric modeling of FOMC decisions, all have come and gone within a decade or two. The emergence and demise of these debates about how to reform and improve the formulation execution of monetary policies by committee have left us after 100 years questioning the concept of central banking and monopoly monetary authorities. My paper addresses a series of issues about central banking, and I have time uh, here to only summarize some of the conclusions. Moral hazard. I'm going to go further than what Charlie said, but the existence per se of central banks with discretionary powers in a fiat currency world creates moral hazard in the financial system. Because of the explicit and implicit safety net offered by the existence of central banks, private financial institutions cannot be observed behaving as they would in absence of such moral hazard. Because of moral hazard in the financial system, the trend has been toward ever more regulations and calls for closer supervision of financial companies. The resulting permission and denial regime opens ever wider the door of cronyism in the financial system. For many years, it's been recognized that too big to fail – is a large and growing problem. In more recent years, more people are beginning to also understand that too politically well-connected and powerful to effectively supervise has now become a major obstacle to meaningful financial system reforms. For the biggest banks, their PACs, political action committees, are more important than their credit policy committees. In addition to moral hazard in the financial system, it also emerges in other institutions of governments because of the presence of central banks with discretionary powers. It is evident in a lessening of political pressures on the tax and regulatory authorities of government to undertake the always difficult actions and decisions that would enhance the magic of the marketplace that fosters growth. Even when most observers recognize that the sand and the gears preventing more robust economic prosperity arises from the regulatory and tax policies of government, the mistaken belief that monetary actions can overcome these obstacles results in an adverse mix of policies of government. Economists, at least in this audience, understand that monetary authorities cannot correct the mistakes of the rest of government. Central bank independence is a myth, at least in a crisis environment. In a financial crisis, central banks and ministries of finance are not able to resist the political pressures to alter the stance of policies in response to the declaration of a crisis. Once central banks make the mistake of engaging in quasi-fiscal actions in futile attempts to correct the mistakes of the rest of the government, there is no feasible exit strategy that does not involve much collateral damage. When economic activity is constrained or adversely impacted by government's anti-supply-side taxation and regulatory actions, central banks come under great pressure to engage in demand-side monetary actions as a countermeasure. That mistake cannot be reversed without negative consequences. As the U.S. Central Bank approaches its centennial, Politicians have come to view it as an activist instrument of economic policymaking, responsible for pursuing multiple objection, objectives of financial stability, employment, output, low interest rates, tolerable inflation, all with a single tool of the power to create fiat currency. Regarding the debate about rules versus discretion, the FOMC is institutionally designed to exercise discretion rather than adopt and follow rules in the formulation of policy actions. The ongoing dialogue in academic circles about rules versus discretion has not found a satisfactory solution to the issue of enforcement of adopted rules. There is no institutionalized monetary discipline. The externally imposed discipline at the end of the highly inflationary 1970s ushered in the great moderation, which was characterized by falling budget deficits and even occasional surpluses, falling inflation, and rapid economic growth. The essential point is that the U.S. policymakers were not disciplined by institutional arrangements within the central bank, nor by uh, pressures from elsewhere within the U.S. government. The few occasions of discipline emerging from competition with other, more effectively managed currencies suggests that opening the door to domestic alternatives to central bank-issued notes would offer the potential for greater monetary stability than is the case with a monopoly currency. Transparency. Deliberations by central bank policymakers in the formulation of discretionary policy actions must be conducted in secret. Policymakers know that if their preference is to target a price axis variable, such as an overnight interbank rate or an exchange rate, such targets cannot be pre announced. Forward guidance with regard to policy targets is possible only with horizontal axis magnitudes, such as bank reserves, central bank money, or monetary aggregates. Exiting the current zero interest rate regime has proven to be quite messy because there is simply no way to be transparent about the end without creating considerable turbulence in financial markets. Open-mouth policies. There was a time not long ago when the FOMC directive would give a form of forward guidance by announcing that although the decision at a certain meeting was to leave the Fed funds rate unchanged, a majority of the committee had a bias to raise or a bias to lower the rate at a subsequent meeting. There's nothing new about jawboning instead of acting. Neutral. There was a time not long ago when the FOMC would attempt to determine at what level the federal funds rate, the stance of monetary policy was neutral, either expansionary nor contractionary. This notion of a neutral Fed funds rate, either nominal or real, was different from a natural rate in the Vixelles sense. On occasions, changes in the estimated real rate and a perceived natural rate gave opposite signals about the stance of policy. I argued that such was the case in the 1990s, and now I think that we have the mirror image of that. Thank you. Today, the overnight interbank rate has become meaningless as a policy instrument federal funds rate today is about as useful as the official price of gold, a price at which there are no transactions. Demand management. Once an idea that uh, we went into quantitative easing, the notion that monetary actions can and should be employed so as to influence nominal spending in the national economy, uh, that was the dominant fa- framework. If there is a relationship between QE and any measure of economic activity, it is a remarkably well-kept secret. Monetary targeting in the 70s, 80s was a unique historical thing based on institutional arrangements. It doesn't exist. There's a fear, it's already been discussed in the questions with Charlie, about deflation. There's an institutional bias within the central bank against rising purchasing power of money. Charlie discussed the dual mandate, I'll skip over that. There's quite a bit in my text about it. Same thing about the gap analysis. Monetary and fiscal mix was the debate at one time. When monetary becomes fiscal, the mix is complete. The notion that monetary actions could be restrictive and fiscal expansionary or the other way around became nonsense when monetary actions in QE mode morphed into fiscal actions carried out by the central bank. Is it even useful to think in terms of monetary versus fiscal anymore? Once open market operations mean nothing more than monetizing government bonds and acquiring a large portfolio of private debt instruments such as mortgage-backed securities or, or attempting to twist the yield curve, traditional views of monetary policies are no longer useful. I also have some comments about two different ways in which I view quantitative easing policies actually can be viewed as perverse, that they are not stimulative as the conventional wisdom, but I can interpret them in two different frameworks as actually being inhibiting economic activity that is restrictive. When the Federal Reserve Banks were incorporated and then opened for business in 1914, nothing they did would have been construed to be what later came to be called monetary policy. Now, almost a century later, the same can be said again. In the beginning, the U.S. Central Bank was supposed to be a lender of last resort. But even after almost 100 years, there's no, there are no established rules for providing this safety net. No one can say who will and who will not be bailed out in the future. Instead of lending only to inject liquidity into financial markets, insolvent institutions have also received central bank loans. Instead of lending only to banks, Non bank financial companies and even non financial companies have also received loans from the central bank. No one can say who it is and who is not going to receive loans in the future, for what amounts, and for what duration. There are no effective rules governing central bank lending. Congress delegated its constitutional authority to coin money and regulate the value thereof to a central bank but has consistently failed to provide effective oversight of the money creation process. Worse, Congress saddled the central bank with an unworkable dual mandate and an institutional bias towards artificially low interest rates. The central bank is now dominated by people who believe that inflation occurs as a result of a too low unemployment rate and is not a risk as long as unemployment is above some threshold. That is, the primary focus of monetary policymakers will not give greater weight to inflation until they perceive that too many mommies and daddies are working, earning a paycheck, and supporting their families, damn it. <laughs> the, the century-long track record includes the Great Depression of the 1930s, the Great Inflation of the 1970s, episodes of bubbles, panics, and crises, an average inflation that has left the 2013 dollar Only worth only a small fraction of the 1913 dollar, our challenge is to establish institutional arrangements that prevent the next 100 years from simply being more of the same. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Jerry. Uh, Our next speaker will be George Selgin. George?
2: I get the uh, screen to come on, anyone? Uh, thank you very much. Right, I'd like to, uh, thank, thank you Mary, and thank you all for uh, 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 letting me have this opportunity to talk about uh, what I call uh, Operation Twist the Truth. Uh, I'd like to <laughs> preface my remarks by saying that uh, my opinions are strictly uh, personal and I do not speak uh, for the Federal Reserve System. <laughs> I, uh, I also want you to uh, be aware that uh, uh, my paper is a very long paper, which is perhaps why it's not in your packets, and so I'm going to only have, have time to skim over a few points. Now, in the private sector, uh, there's only one way for firms to succeed, usually. They have to accomplish what they set out to accomplish, namely making profits. In government and in... Central banking in particular, that's not necessarily so. There are two ways to succeed. You can either do what you say you're supposed to do, or you can claim that you've done it. And if you're successful enough at getting people to believe the claim, why, you can you can prevail and to prosper, even if you haven't actually accomplished your goals. Uh, and I believe that the Fed's success, such as it is, a success that's represented by it having more power than ever, having a bit bigger balance sheet than ever, bigger than any private in- financial institution, is success. It's based not on its actual accomplishments, but on its successful propaganda. Now, I only have time to point out a few aspects of this propaganda and how it distorts. And by the way, by Fed propaganda, I don't mean the stuff done by the research uh, economists at the various Federal Reserve banks. I mean the stuff aimed for the general, to the, uh, at the general public, produced mainly by the board uh, and by the various banks in their educational uh, uh, undertakings. The Fed's uh, misrepresentation of the record uh, starts with its rewriting of monetary history, starting with the early beginnings of banking in the United States, that uh, those official writings are filled with remarks uh, like this one from a Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank video that says that in the early years of the country there was little supervision or regulation of banks at all. Of course, the point of that statement is to make it self evident that only more regulation and intervention could possibly have given us a good system, given that the system in the beginning of the republic was not perfect. In fact, That's not true. As Bray Hammond in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Banks and Politics in America Before the Civil War, pointed out, the issue in the early years of the republic was between prohibition and state control with no thought of free enterprise. Now, this matters because the biggest problems with the U.S. banking and currency system before the Civil War were problems traceable to the manner in which banks were regulated. They were not problems stemming from a lack of regulation. I can't point out all of the instances of this, but I'll just just refer to one. There's, a, there's another uh, video, I think it's also a, uh, 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 from the Philadelphia Fed, that shows two farmers negotiating over the sale of a horse, I think, and pondering a stack of state banknotes and uh, discovering or not being certain exactly what they're worth. Well, in fact, it's true that there were discounts on state bank notes, depending on how far they'd circulated from the bank that was their source. Why was this so? It wasn't a natural consequence of the normal development of banking. It was because there was no branch banking in the United States, because laws did not allow it. Consequently, bank notes were discounted according to how costly it would be to get them back to their sources, the only places where they could be redeemed. In countries without. These restrictions on branching, which we continued to have until the 1990s, you didn't have discounts on privately issued paper currency. Even so, the discounts got pretty small by the end of the state banking period. In October 1863, according to my calculations, if you bought every banknote in the country at face value and then sold it for what a broker would pay for the batch in New York or Chicago, the loss would have been less than 1% of the note's face value. In any event, the lack of uniform currency has been used as an argument for the nationalization of currency during the Civil War by the creation of the national banking system. In fact, the true reason was to help finance the war because national banks were required to back their notes with U.S. government bonds. We'll see the consequences of that in a moment. Uh, But... Fed Fed, uh, sources point out that bank runs and financial panics continued under this new system to plague the nation. They say owing to the inability of the banking system to expand or contract currency in circulation, this inability, finally, they conclude, was due to the absence of a central banking structure. Well, saying it that way implies there's only one solution, right? Well, here you go. Here's the pattern of currency supply in the United States between 1880 and 1900. The uh, dotted line in left-hand scale are the relevant U.S. Uh, 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 oops, data. In any event, uh, this is something that was talked about in uh, 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 Professor Plosser's talk. That line, as you can see, that kind of dotted downward sloping line, shows that the currency supply is shrinking in the United States and has, indeed, no seasonal flexibility. So, clearly, this system wasn't any good. But was it because we didn't have a central bank? Oh, look, there's another line. What's that? It's adjusting upward with economic growth that, as you would expect, would be the right behavior in the period, and has a lovely seasonal pattern. Turns out it's Canada's currency supply, right-hand scale, It's uh, about 10 times, one-tenth as large as the U.S., Canada, at that time. So uh, I guess Canada must have had a central bank all this time, 1880, before then. I wonder when the... Oh, wait a minute. They didn't have a central bank. They had decentralized currency supply with a bunch of different note-issuing banks. How could this be? (laughs) Perfectly elastic currency. Because their banks didn't have to back their notes with U.S. government bonds. They could issue notes based on general assets, whereas in the U.S., the notes had to be baked, backed by bonds, and guess what? The U.S. government was retiring its debts, so the bonds were getting very scarce. It wasn't worth issuing currency, especially just for a season. Now, the other thing the Fed, authority, Fed sources don't tell you is that there were many attempts to copy the Canadian system, to pass bills that would have reformed it that way, that would have deregulated to give us an elastic currency. But there's no mention of this in most of these sources. Ben Bernanke, in his talk uh, for the GWU, uh, George Washington University lectures, just tells his students that, oh, after 1907, that is the panic, Congress began to say, well, wait a minute, we need to do something about this. Maybe we need a central bank. Whereas in truth, of course, the Fed was a second or even a third best solution to the problem of currency and elasticity, one that was turned to only because Unit bankers, established unit bankers, and Wall Street bankers uh, pleaded for or lobbied for retention of the status quo banking structure because it served their interests and so put the kibosh to all those deregulatory reform bills. That's how we ended up with the Fed. Another aspect of Federal Reserve propaganda is the claim that the Fed has independence. There's a great deal of emphasis on the structure of the Fed, the different Federal Reserve banks. Here's a statement, a typical one, sorry the font's not right, but the Fed conducts monetary policy with relative autonomy from the federal government. Its decisions are thus insulated from short-term political influence. (laughs) Well, they certainly weren't at first when the Secretary of the Treasury and the Deputy Secretary were both sitting members of the Federal Reserve Board, and they weren't there just to listen. They were there to tell it what to do. If there was a war, for example, they were telling it to keep interest rates low so people would buy plenty of war bonds, even if that meant that the inflation rate was higher than in any other time in the 20th century. Double-digit inflation, worse, far worse in 1917, 1819 than it was in the 70s. Now, a lot of Fuss is made about the 1951 Treasury Accord as really giving the Fed independence. But that accord just scuttled an old arrangement where the Fed would maintain a particular interest rate for Treasury securities. There was just a minor compromise, but in fact it did nothing fundamental to release the Fed from its dependence on the whim of the administration. Uh, William McChesney Martin negotiated the accord, not, as some Fed sources say, on behalf of the Fed, but for the Treasury for which he worked at the time. He was rewarded by then being made chairman of the Fed, while the guy who had been chairman was fired by Truman. Even when the Fed does something nice, like stop inflation as it did under Voker, it only does it when the administration is in favor of it, when it supports it. So the claims about Fed independence are much exaggerated. Now, for the Fed to claim it's done a good job preserving the stability of money, that's a real PR coup. How do they do that? Well, one approach is to do what a video that uh, you can uh, also see in one of the Federal Reserve sources does. It just points to the deficiencies of gold and allows you to draw the conclusion that fiat money, the Fed's money, must be better. Fluctuations in the purchasing power of gold made gold a poor standard on which to base our measure of value, blah, blah, blah. You would never guess from these statements. The other thing they like to do (laughs) is to pretend that inflation is some kind of a a, 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 something that attacks from without. That the Fed's doing everything it can possibly do to put a stop to inflation. If the price level begins to rise, how can that happen? Who's doing that? well, the Fed will try to adjust the monetary policy in order to slow this advance in prices. They might as well claim that inflation comes from the planet Krypton or something. (laughs) Bernanke also likes to claim that uh, deflation is always bad, and that's why it has to be stopped. He said in his GWU lecture, I don't know of any unambiguous example of supply-driven deflation, although China is a possible case. Well, uh, in my understanding of supply and demand, any time you have rapid productivity growth, you could have supply-driven inflation if only the authorities would allow it. In fact, economic scholars are aware of many episodes in the past when central banks were not in the way of it, when we had supply-driven benign deflation. There were more episodes like that than of the bad kind of deflation. Oh, the bad kind of deflation when demand sags, Guess what? The worst episodes of that in U.S. history have occurred since the Fed was established, in the early 1920s, in the early 1930s. What about bank runs? The Fed would like you to believe that bank runs are a result of people just panicking randomly. I'm going to run out of time. There's too many Fed lies for me to cover. (laughs) Bernanke Bernanke even talks about gives us an example. He can't find a good empirical example in reality, so he has to turn to Frank Capra's film to explain how <laughs> bank runs happen. So you have the run on the Bailey Building and Trust. Everyone just panics for no reason. Then he says, well, if the Fed had been on his toes, we would have been able to help old George Bailey. He keeps calling him uh, uh, whatever the actor's name, Jimmy Stewart, but George Bailey. In fact, uh, the Bailey Building and Trust wouldn't have been el- eligible for central bank lending at the time. It didn't have the right uh, collateral. Uh, but the Fed did nothing to stop bank failures and panics such as they were. They weren't due to a random panic. It was the FDIC that for a while put the, the gu- kibosh to those. You can see that from this chart. Oh, boy. Too big to fail. Well, that's the ultimate result of the Fed's standing as a lander of last resort, and that's just made things worse. Now we're having an orgy of consolidation, and it never ends. And now I've just gotten to the financial crisis where the lies really start, and I have about one minute left. Where Two minutes, where do we, two <laughs> minutes left. Uh, ben Bernanke and others at the Fed have claimed that they've acted consistently with the last resort lending ideas of Walter Badgett, who advised central banks in this quote to respond to panics by lending freely against sound collateral. From the beginning of their crises, Bernanke asserts, the Fed's actions were consistent with the Badgett approach. Well, no, they weren't. First of all, too big to fail, the genie having been let out of the bottle, was not, no attempt was made, it to, made to stuff it back in. On the contrary, when Bear was rescued, the rescue wasn't justified by saying, look, they had all this good collateral, which they didn't, the Fed bought collateral that it valued as being equal to what it lent, but in fact, shortly afterwards, it was clearly worth less. Any, and it did it off the balance sheet, so it could, well, lie that way. But, um... But in fact, uh, the the rescue of Bear was justified on too-big-to-fail grounds. So now you've opened the door for too-big-to-fail to to be applied to investment banks. And guess what that leads to? Well, we don't have time to talk too much about it. That was Lehman Brothers, by the way. Uh, The Fed claims it's helped in the crisis... Well, for starters, it never mentions that it may have actually contributed to the boom, even though many economists, particularly John Taylor, but many others as well, believe the low-interest rate policy was a big factor in the boom, the biggest perhaps, and therefore a big factor in the bust. You can look these up later. And it, while it was supposed to be providing general credit according to Badgett's rule, in fact, the Fed was sterilizing its loans to particular institutions during this crisis, selling off treasuries, sopping up liquidity from the general market, and directing it towards the particular markets and firms it had wanted to help. Look at this chart. This, oops, didn't want to do that. So here is the Fed's, where's the laser on this thing? If it's there, it's not much of one. So here's the... Here's the Fed selling treasuries. That's soaking up liquidity from the general market. Here is the Fed's total balance sheet. So you can see that it's putting in junk, helping particular markets. There's what's happened in nominal spending in the economy. That's ipso facto proof that the market is being denied general liquidity. There's a monetary shortage, but it's, it's because the Fed is too busy propping up particular institutions. So I would argue that they are responsible for doing the wrong thing quite contrary to Badgett and contributing to the crisis. Okay, I'm almost done. Now, of course, they've also said that they've helped the recovery, made it a lot faster. This is one of, is one of the slowest recoveries we've ever had. And the claim reminds me of an old episode of the Beverly Hillbillies in which uh, the rumor it uh, comes out that Granny, you're all mostly old enough to know about this, <laughs> Granny has a cure for the common cold, a potion, it uh, it uh, It's just the thing, and everybody's trying to figure out what it is. At the end of the episode, it's revealed of what the Granny says, yeah, thing works like a charm. You take it, take a swig of it, seven to ten days, you're as good as new. <laughs> the only difference is if you take a swig of Fed policies, your cold lasts longer than they usually do. Here's the rate of recovery, the change in output, uh, t- uh, 16 quarters after the... Pre downturn peak for all of the post war crises. Well, you can see that the recovery is extremely meager in 2007, much more so than in any other crisis. Here's the unemployment figure, even worse, right? So we're way below where we were before. Into uh, uh, that's 51 months after the crisis. All right, I'm almost done. (laughs) The Fed has been so desperate in its attempt to claim that it's done a great job this time around. That it uh, it's been it's resorted to claiming that success by virtue of pointing out that its policies helped to avoid a repeat of the Great Depression, and this I say is the greatest Fed PR coup of all, by which by virtue of which it has managed to take its greatest lemon and make lemonade with it. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you very much, George, for uh, lots of uh, food for thought. Um, and our final speaker on the panel will be Mr. Orfanidis. Thank you.
3: Um, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to, to be here. And, and uh, I guess this is a proof of uh, the attempt to provide balance at the panel. Uh, I wasn't aware that, uh, that the previous presentation would end with, uh, uh, with a statement of my uh, former uh, co-author, uh, John Williams. We worked together at the Fed, and I would absolutely defend his quote because I do think that, uh, that the Fed has uh, managed to uh, prevent uh, the, uh, the Great Depression or a rerun of the Great Depression with the, rear, with the uh, very forceful and decisive uh, action, much like other central banks have done. But, you know, this is probably what you would have expected to hear from a, uh, from a guy who spent uh, so, so much time uh, at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington uh, and then spent five years in, uh, in, in, in Europe uh, as well. So I'm going to start with uh, with the question, was the Fed a good idea? I thought this is why I was uh, put on the program, just so that you have someone say yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is my one-word uh, answer to a uh, uh, to question of the conference. But then, frankly, I thought, okay, maybe uh, uh, there needed to be a qualifier to this, and my my two-word uh, uh, answer to the uh, uh, to the question is uh, is yes, but. Uh, and and what do we need to focus on, uh, I believe, in the hundredth uh, uh, year anniversary of the Federal Reserve is uh, is how to make things better. And and I take uh, I take the uh, the title of the session uh, to be uh, what we have learned. Uh, And how can we use what we have learned to improve uh, what might be uh, the second hundred years of the Federal Reserve, unless you guys are successful in in stopping uh, uh, that? So, again, I I think that a a well-functioning monetary system is a prerequisite for the greatness of any nation. And this is why a central bank is necessary. This doesn't say what a central bank should do. A central bank may have a very limited uh, role. as limited as, uh, as what Charlie Plosser highlighted this morning, even more limited than that, but I believe that it is important to have a central uh, bank uh, in, in place. Actually, there are emergencies uh, where the very existence of a nation could be threatened if you do not have the power to issue money. And uh, frankly, the idea that during existential wars, uh, uh, the central bank of a nation uh, might help The financing of the world effort, I think, is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The question is how to do it right so that you do not suffer long-term negative consequences from from that. And in my view, one way to summarize uh, why the Federal Reserve could be improved and uh, some of the things that have gone wrong, and uh, I do accept uh, the proposition that uh, there have been mistakes in the first hundred years, despite the fact that the staff and the leadership at at the Federal Reserve, they are dedicated public servants. This has not avoided mistakes. Why is that? In my view, the answer is that the Federal Reserve has been hampered by the lack of clarity in its mandate. Price stability, uh, in my view, should have been all along the primary mandate of any central bank. It's not, for the various reasons we, uh, we have heard some, the, the political interference, uh, other uh, reasons that come in. But I think that going forward, uh, we can try to correct that. And in my view, what is required is an act of Congress for the second hundred years of the Federal Reserve that would make price stability the primary objective of the Federal Reserve. And then we can discuss uh, the limit uh, of, the, of the mandate uh, beyond that. Um, we've shared already uh, the, uh, the issues with, uh, with the mandate uh, uh, as it has evolved over time. Uh, at the beginning, there has been no mention of price stability, and indeed part of it was that, uh, that the Federal Reserve was, uh, uh, was founded uh, in, in the environment of a, of a gold standard, but we have this, the Federal Reserve was trying to understand uh, how to interpret uh, its objective, that the rates of discount uh, would be fixed with a view to accommodating uh, commerce and, and business. And frankly, the leadership and the staff of the Federal Reserve had had a lot of trouble trying to understand how to best fulfill the role they had. So um, um, I have this quote from the uh, first edition of uh, the Federal Reserve System Purposes and Functions, which was an attempt by the Board of Governors uh, actually uh, authored uh, this this report to explain what the Fed's uh, mandate uh, was. And and you can read uh, here uh, about how uh, the Board of Governors in 1939, not a terribly good period for the Federal Reserve, was interpreting what it wanted uh, to do and what it had been asked to do. And, uh, it, you know, so, so they say that the Federal Reserve functions should be understood, focused on the last four, four lines, uh, uh, in light of its objective, which is to maintain monetary conditions favorable for an active and sound use of the country's productive facilities, full employment, and the rate of consumption reflecting widely diffused well-being. This sounds wonderful. Motherhood and apple pie. But, of course, this is not a statement uh, of what uh, the Federal Reserve could do, and it's not a statement that the Federal Reserve could be held accountable to doing. And what's remarkable, in 1939, after episodes of very violent inflation and deflation uh, in the first uh, um, uh, 25 years of the, uh, of the Federal Reserve, there is no mention of price stability uh, at all in this, uh, in this mandate. Things have changed. Uh, I actually believe that the 1950s uh, was a period when the Federal Reserve worked much better uh, in terms of uh, uh, preserving price stability and sustaining uh, what it could provide to to growth. In 1957, uh, the Board of Governors, in in responding uh, to uh, to a, a hearing before the Committee of Finance, actually noted price stability is essential to sustainable growth. And I believe at that time, they operated along uh, along these lines. Uh, Unfortunately, the Congress uh, of the United States did not help clarify uh, the mandate uh, all along. Um, Charlie Plosser already talked about uh, the 1977, then 1978 in the Humphrey-Hawkins Act uh, um, uh, definition uh, of the uh, uh, the mandate. uh, And the fact that uh, what we see was the... uh, uh, the focus, is here, uh, the focus on, on the last line here, on the last two lines, uh, uh, that uh, the focus of the Fed would be to uh, promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. And this is the dual mandate. Uh, and you could say, well, okay, that was 1977. The country wasn't doing that well in terms of... Uh, uh, macroeconomy. But after that, we have uh, 25, 30 years of uh, better policies that restored reasonable price stability and growth. What happened? Well, what happened is that uh, I believe that with the appointment of of Chairman Volcker at the Federal Reserve, we actually had a different interpretation of the mandate. We had an interpretation that Chairman Volcker reminded us uh, in in a speech uh, he gave earlier this uh, this year, recognized how important it is not to burden uh, the Federal Reserve with uh, too many responsibilities and recognize that if the Federal Reserve tries to pursue a, a dual mandate, as pointed out in the last couple of lines, In the process of trying, it loses sight of its basic responsibility for price stability, a matter which is within its range of influence, and then everything else uh, uh, can be beyond uh, uh, reach. So I believe that we had a period that was a more stable uh, period because the Federal Reserve, during this period, interpreted its ambiguous mandate more appropriately. Why this interpretation? There are many reasons for this interpretation. One reason, um, and I picked this uh, uh, from a quote from from Alan Greenspan in 1994, is because we do not know what the appropriate level of real economic activity is. And this is one of the many reasons why you would want to just focus on preserving uh, price stability. And this brings me to the present. When I worry about the interpretation of the dual mandate having become too literal on part of the mandate. And here I just quote uh, uh, from the uh, FOMC statement of December 2012, just a year ago, uh, first noting that consistent with its statutory mandate, the committee seeks to foster maximum employment and price stability without any hesitation of pointing out the conflict in that and then later on, uh, unfortunately, in my mind, uh, uh, explicitly introducing numerical thresholds on the unemployment rate as in guidance for policy. Something that has already been, uh, been mentioned uh, earlier in this, uh, uh, in this uh, session. This actually makes me worry quite a bit uh, from, a, uh, uh, from a, um, a speech by Narayana Kocher-Lakota, a member of the, of, of the committee earlier this, uh, this year, uh, I, uh, I reproduce this chart um, where Coach um, uh, Lakota was essentially saying, look, we have a dual mandate, so it's the responsibility of the Fed to actually make sure inflation goes beyond what we consider price stability in order to do better, and we're going to call this balance. But I will not comment on any other elements of propaganda that have been pointed out before. So um, what can go wrong? Um, Okay, some of you will remember the 70s, others will not remember the 70s, but I want to bring you an example of what can go wrong that worries me from the 70s. And here I actually have to give uh, a lot of credit to the Federal Reserve for being the most uh, uh, transparent uh, central bank uh, in the world regarding its history. Everything I have here, you can actually get of the websites, either of the board or the Federal Reserve Systems, because transcripts are there, the memorandum of discussion are there, the staff analysis is there, everything is there, so we can actually evaluate it ex- uh, exposed. So um, you remember what happened in, in the late 60s. Inflation was, uh, uh, was rising somewhat. There was a recession that the NBR uh, called. Uh, and um, uh, as, uh, as, as 1970 was going along, The Fed was unhappy with the pace of recovery, if that reminds you of of anything. There was growth, but the unemployment rate remained high, according uh, to the Fed. Staff analysis suggested that there was so much underutilization of resources that the inflation forecast would be in line with price stability. Nothing to worry about. Output gap-based optimal control suggested that policy should be eased even further, despite many, many, uh, many, many easings of policy earlier that year, and the Fed kept, uh, kept easing. This is what the, uh, uh, the data looked like. Uh, the inflation was projected uh, after the uh, uh, dotted line, its projections, uh, to fall. The output gap was humongous, is the correct technical term, I, I believe. Uh, the uh, the staff analysis uh, confirmed that uh, this, can be a com- this can be found in the memorandum of discussion from the August uh, 1970 meeting. From the discussion, you can see an FOMC member comments, wow, in my judgment, that was not as satisfactory as goal of policy uh, to have this. And of course, the FOMC is. They did not get the disinflation they wanted. Instead, You had, and this was the episode that defined the period, you had a continuation of inflation, and then a further increase in inflation in 1973, and we know what happened after that. Why is that? Because they had mismeasured the gap. You don't know what the real activity target is. They missed that, and they let inflation out of the box. This was a systemic issue throughout the 1970s, as I've shown in in other work, and the result of that experience is that the easy money policy of 1970 that was so reasonable to present as balanced at the time is what morphed into the stagflation of the 1970s. So I ask myself in the remaining two minutes I have, have these uncertainties been resolved? Well, I don't know. I'm going to need to, to wait uh, five years to see what the Fed's uh, current estimates of these concepts are, So I went to the CBO uh, and and got uh, their estimates of potential, and uh, boy, these things get revised. So, hmm, I wonder if these things will continue to be revised uh, going forward, and I wonder what this may actually mean for uh, judgments about the stance of policy uh, uh, today. So the continuation of the unprecedented expansion of the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve despite the fact that the economy is growing, is something that, in my view, is worrisome. But then when I look at the Fed, it's something that is justified as a result of the full employment mandate that is there in the law. And this is what people call, this is what people cite when they justify that policy. The Fed is guided by this interpretation. And risks losing sight of price stability. In my view, a lot of progress can be achieved if the Fed has a clear mandate. And this is why I believe what's required is an act of Congress that would make price stability the primary objective of the Federal Reserve for the second hundred years.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, uh, we have time for about, we have, I think we have about 15 minutes for questions. As the moderator of the panel, I felt uh, obliged to take some notes, and uh, it was hard to keep up. But just for some food for, for thought and informing our questions, what I was able to jot down is that um, we have learned that the link between central bank moneta- the central bank monetary base and commercial bank liabilities is completely broken, QE is restrictive. Central bank independence is a myth. The monopolists at the Fed can only be disciplined by competition. The Fed misrepresents the monetary history of the U.S. and engages in what Professor Selgin politely calls propaganda. Uh, a lack of clarity about what the monopolists at the Fed are supposed to do is a problem. And other than that, the U.S. store of value and medium of exchange is completely secure. <laughs> uh,
3: That's not what I said. I, open-
0: <laughs> 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 I think you talked about a lack of clarity, if I, if I didn't miss that. Um, let me open it up to questions. We have a microphone here, and if you could identify who you are uh, before you mm-hmm. give us your question, that would be great. Bert, yes, can you? Uh, thank you. Bertie, the uh, banking consultant, Cato scholar,
2: um, adjunct scholar. Uh, a question uh, for the panel. Um, we have seen in, in recent years that uh, what the Fed has done primarily is influence interest rates. Uh, traditionally, by bringing down uh, or manipulating short-term interest rates through the uh, federal fund trade target. And, of course, in more recent years through QE, uh, the various QEs of uh, bringing down Uh, The long-term interest rate. My question is simply this. Uh, Is the American economy better off because the Federal Reserve is engaged in what effectively is uh, interest rate or price manipulation, or uh, might the U.S. economy perform better if uh, the
1: markets set interest rates across the entire yield curve? I
0: do. Want to take that? We'll go right across.
1: Well, let me start briefly, uh, Bert. Um, You assert that the Federal Reserve is responsible for the current structure of interest rates, but there's no evidence for that. There are alternative explanations. If you were asked, if if the Federal Reserve were to say, the purpose of buying long-term government bonds and mortgage-backed securities is to keep low interest rates in New Zealand, you would probably say that doesn't make any sense. There must be another explanation. Okay, the fact that we have low interest rates in the U.S., and the Fed says that's an objective, doesn't mean causality. Mike Walker, formerly of the uh, director of the Fraser Institute, has a, a paper presenting an alternative uh, theory framework that says today's interest rate structure has absolutely nothing to do with what the Federal Reserve is doing, and I allude
3: to that in my paper. Uh,
1: George?
2: Essence. Okay.
3: Okay. Um, let, let, me, let me make a remark on this. So the, uh, I, I see the unconventional measures, and they started in, uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, uh, as a means uh, through which uh, the Federal Reserve and other central banks could ease monetary policy further beyond just taking the, uh, uh, the overnight rate to close to zero. And I believe that was the appropriate response to the crisis. This does not uh, necessitate trying to control long-term rates, and I would like to delink those, uh, uh, those two. Um, and it's, it's actually much harder, in my view, to, uh, to justify the expansion of the balance sheet uh, and the uh, uh, emphasis at the long end of the ter- term structure over the past year than it was as a crisis response mechanism, which I believe was necessary uh, early on.
1: Yes, right here. Hi, Carl Golovan. Uh President Andrew Jackson in his 1837 farewell address spoke uh, at
2: length about the dangers of central banking and the need to have a circulating medium of gold and silver constitutionally to preserve the wealth of the laboring class and to have that money circulating in the country. Um, he also you know, vigorously opposed and, and ended the Second Bank of the U.S. Uh I ask your opinion, why, why does the current Central Bank of the U.S., given Andrew Jackson's hatred of paper money, put his image on the $20 bill? And, uh, and ha- have we learned in these hundred years that Andrew Jackson was right?
0: George, you want to take that one?
2: <laughs> well, like I say, they don't know their monetary history very well. <laughs> Uh, uh, I don't really have an explanation apart from that of of why they've done that. There have been some interesting cases like that in the past. Uh, I believe uh, I'm right in saying that uh, uh, Salmon Chase's picture was on uh, some of the greenbacks at the time when uh, he had become the Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice and uh, 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 was uh, responsible for striking down their legal tender status as unconstitutional. And the Bank of England has notes with Adam Smith on them, even though Smith uh, never had anything good to say about central banks and could not have conceived of, of, uh, of well, he, he, he certainly wrote quite favorably of his Scottish banking system. So uh, there's a lot of irony in
3: central bank currency design, I suppose you could say.
0: Did you
3: want to comment? Well, uh, actually, an explanation I've heard, and I have no idea if it's correct or not, is that that the Federal Reserve knew its history all too well and found that this was the best way to get back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Hi, Larry Mako. Thank you very much. This is a great, great panel.
2: Hearing about Milton Friedman, competition, gold, I'm wondering if people on the panel have views about virtual currencies, Bitcoin, currencies that are not particularly related to any government entity, and whether or not there can be competition, ultimately, that comes from those that can discipline the banks. And also, whether or not, in view of the fact that, you know, the Fed has a significant role in enforcing money laundering, and there's been a number of, uh, money laundering-based concerns expressed about uh, virtual currencies? Is there a conflict there uh, for something that could have a disciplining
1: effect? I'll start on that. Uh, there's a, several papers in a conference that uh, George and Larry White put together at the George Mason Mercatus Center two weeks ago. I addressed that issue in my paper. It was in the Q&A, and there were some others in that part of that conference. So that's your best answer is get those papers. Bitcoin, for instance, is serving now a wholesale function, whether it's a capital flight out of Argentina or lowering the cost of going between U.S. dollars and European euros versus the conventional methods as a wholesale kind of a function. As von Mises said, a currency without a history is unthinkable. Um, There's no such thing as a Phoenix-like currency. Um, So you have to develop a track record. Right now it's being developed in, in a wholesale sense. Later on it might become useful in a retail medium exchange. But it's an evolutionary process and there will be competitors to it. For the United States, borrowing from Professor Timberlake, you have to do two things. One, you have to end, well three actually, but you have to end legal tender. You have to legislate specific performance and you need to end the federal taxation on certificates related to gold, for instance, or silver, as legislation pending in Utah and places like that?
0: Do either one of you yeah.
2: Yeah, go ahead. If I, may. Uh, I think they, that uh, the importance of competing basic currencies, that's not the same as uh, having different banks that can issue notes that are convertible into some common currency. The importance of competing currencies, it's easy to overestimate. When you have a number of well-established currencies that people can choose from, then uh, there is a definite uh, uh, role that can be assigned to free choice among them in uh, disciplining the issuers because people have alternatives that are are, uh, viable, alternatives that they might, under the right circumstances, be able to turn to without tremendous costs of doing so. It's a whole other story trying to launch a new alternative currency, whether it's digital or paper or metallic, uh, because uh, getting the network going is so hard. Until the network becomes substantial, uh, it's not a serious rival to any of the established currencies, and they don't have to worry about it for that reason, and they're not disciplined by it for that reason. You mentioned, of course, the other problem, uh, which is precisely that the people who run the established currencies can do a lot of things to prevent a new rival's network from uh, becoming large by throwing all kinds of legal barriers in the way of its development. And the more prosperous and successful a new rival currency is, the more likely established currency authorities will try to do something to kill it off. And this has happened already in other countries like Thailand where new currencies did seem to be getting important and the legal authorities
3: decided to put a stop to them. I think we would want to separate uh, uh, two issues. Do we want uh, a currency that functions properly? Yes. Do we want to diminish the uh, power that control of the currency gives to a government and its people. And I believe the answer to that is no. And we want to be very careful about uh, allowing the introduction of anything that would threaten to limit the uh, the power uh, of the United States. For example, think about it. Without a currency, this this brings me back to, to Andrew Jackson. So the. Uh, uh, The United States was left without a central bank uh, in the War of 1812. I think the outcome of that war might have been very different uh, if uh, we did not have what I consider a very unfortunate uh, decision to uh, revoke the charter uh, of uh, of the Central Bank of the country. In 1812, the U.S. government was not able to raise the funds it wanted to finance the war. The world is not always a friendly place. Citizens of each nation would want the nation to be strong enough to defend the country on some occasions, and the central bank can be a very powerful aid in emergencies. We do not want to take that lightly at all.
0: Even though I'm I'm only your uh, humble uh, moderator, I... I can't resist commenting on that because, you know, if you want to get rid of smuggling, the best way to get rid of it is to get rid of duties and tariffs. And I think the money laundering argument against Bitcoin really targets um, the wrong problem. If you want to get rid of money laundering, you get rid of the engine that's driving the money laundering, which is the international prohibition on drugs. That is the key source of money laundering around the world. It seems to me regulating Bitcoin to solve the uh, problem of a lot of people wanting to consume drugs is the wrong wrong approach. Yes, right here. Gillian Garcia. Parts of the press argue that the U.S recovery is not good, but it's better than that in the UK and the European Union or the Eurozone.
2: And they attribute this to the Fed's dual mandate, which ECB and the Bank of England do not have. What is your response to that? And if you disagree with that part of the press's analysis, what alternative explanation do you offer for the poor but better-than-the-other countries' recovery?
3: Well, so, so I guess this is where I should bring on my European hat. Uh, the, um, uh, and, and you are absolutely right that uh, the Euro area in particular uh, is a big mess right now. But this has... Nothing to do with monetary policy and the actions of the uh, of the ECB. Actually, this goes back to one of the very fundamental elements of losing control of your own currency. What we are observing in uh, uh, in the euro area right uh, right now is a fight, an existential fight among different member states of the of the euro area about uh, who's going to control uh, uh, the uh, the economy. The monetary policy transmission is not working the same way uh, in different parts of the, uh, of the euro area. The ECB cannot fix this problem. This is like in the United States. If you had California and Massachusetts uh, and Virginia and Maryland fighting it out about who would be controlling the future of the country for the benefit of the citizens of their own states without having a U.S. government and a Congress that would ensure that policies uh, are good for everybody uh, in the United States as a whole. This, unfortunately, is what is driving the euro area uh, apart. It's not monetary policy. I dispute the the role uh, of the dual mandate uh, for the uh, um, uh, comparatively better performance uh, of the United States than the euro area. Simply because uh, uh, we have all of these other reasons uh, that explain uh, why uh, Europe is doing uh, so badly right now.
1: Mary, sure, go ahead. Yeah, just add on to that. I don't think that the problems that you you see, whether you want to call it Europe or pick individual countries in the eurozone, has anything to do, uh, or it wasn't caused by, and it's not going to be cured by. Monetary—it's uh, taxation, regulation, malinvestment in all kinds of uh, very uneconomic uh, uh, so-called green energy projects, and so on. What's interesting about what's going on in Europe and worth uh, paying some attention to—an argument is being made by some scholars in Spain now that the euro is functioning as paper gold. It is forcing fiscal, monet, uh, fiscal regulatory tax authorities. Uh, to contemplate some things that are very, very difficult to do politically, but since they don't have the power of the printing press, that they are having to confront these to deal with things like 50% unemployment of teenagers, uh, people leaving the country because of lack of opportunity, the difficulty of forming businesses, just a whole host of things now being contemplated. And it's a hypothesis that's playing out in real time and may bear fruit, and in the end, it may, uh, come, we may come to the conclusion that the structure of the euro, where you have a central bank that is not responsible to a single parliament or to a single ministry of finance, may actually be a stronger institutional arrangement than what we have.
0: I think we have time for one more question. Yes, Wayne.
1: Uh, Wayne Angel. Why has the... Price of the ten-year treasury and the thirty year treasury in the futures market fallen so substantially over the last six months such that the yield on the thirty year treasury and the futures market is now up one hundred and thirty basis points.
0: Any takers for that Not I.
1: Well, let me, let me just comment, because of birth question earlier, uh, If so nothing in the way of QE has changed all year long, so you ought to be saying, well, if QE is responsible for the structure of interest rates that we have today, then why have interest rates gone up so much and are higher now than they were a year ago? Unless you're going to come up with something that nobody can have much more than a casual opinion about, well, they would have been even higher without QE. I would say they're probably totally unrelated. But if you have the stance of fiscal, including long-run fiscal underfunded or totally unfunded entitlement spending, and the central bank sometimes announcing that its objective is to raise inflation expectations under the theory that this can lower inflation-adjusted real interest rates, and that is expansionary and that you can increase asset prices in order to create a wealth effect to get the consumers out there spending and da 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 da. if you believe in those kind of a thing then you have to have a lot of people saying uh hey they're serious about this business of reinflating and so you're going to to take positions to try and protect yourself against ultimately what is coming down the pike i think i think
2: i think that the 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 fed's talk about raising the inflation target is probably the most uh, uh is probably part of the explanation, and but I, I would like to hear uh, Mr. Angel's own uh, explanation, because I have a feeling he has one and it might be pretty good.
1: <laughs> I <clears throat> would only say that I've enjoyed very much being short the 30-year treasury bond future and the 10-year bond future. And so that's good enough for me.
0: (laughs) Uh, We are out of time. Um, Jim has asked me to remind everybody that we have a break, and we ask you to be back here at eleven fifteen for our next panel. Uh, Please join me in thanking our panelists for the session.